بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا أما بعد my dear brothers and sisters, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. It's been, Jazakallah um, khair, thank you so much. It's been a roller coaster of, uh, of about 36 hours, subhanAllah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it easy for Sheikh Muhammad in his grave and grant him light and grant him space and making it a garden from the gardens of paradise. I mean, Ya Rab. You know, SubhanAllah, there was this thing about Sheikh Muhammad that um, he teaches you when you take a public speaking class with him that you want to have a captivating anecdote as soon as you begin. And he says that captivating anecdote, it begins either by a powerful question, by a joke, or by a really powerful story. And then when the news broke in our Al-Maghrib instructor's WhatsApp group that Sheikh Muhammad passed away, quite a few instructors thought, you know what, this is a captivating anecdote. That he wanted to grab our attention because he's going to tell us something profound or he's going to teach us a lesson or he's going to share something with us. And we just kept on waiting. Like, when is this anecdote coming now? You know, like, what is this story? Like, this can't be real. You know, it, 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 it can't be real. And the only thing that I could relate it to at that time was when the Prophet ﷺ passed away and Umar ibn al-Khattab he refused to believe that the Prophet ﷺ had passed away. Like it wasn't possible. The Prophet ﷺ was just awake this morning, he smiled outside of the window. How was it that he had passed away? Like you couldn't imagine it. And for so many of us, some of us had spoken to Shaykh Muhammad yesterday, some of us spoke to us to him last week or a few days ago. How was it possible that this man that was physically healthy, relatively in the prime of his life, he just passes away. We couldn't make sense of it. And eventually, this is where you realize that life isn't guaranteed to anyone. And if life was guaranteed to anyone, it would have been to the Prophet ﷺ. But if Muhammad ﷺ was told, that you are going to be passing away and so shall everyone else, then the reality is, we are literally just a few breaths away, a few heartbeats away, a few glances away from the moment that we meet the angel of death. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make it a pleasant meeting for all of us. Ameen. You know, this was the, the picture that was shared um, on his social media. And when I looked at it, I was like, is this the picture you really want to share of the deceased? Like, it's such a sad moment, but he has this infectious smile that you want to smile with him. So are you being disrespectful by smiling at it saying, Inna lillahi wa inna But as I was preparing this, I was going through this photo stock of, uh, of pictures I have with him. And Allahu Akbar, this is who he was. Like he was always smiling. So is there a more befitting picture, subhanAllah? And even though it is awkward that you're smiling at someone's passing, you're not smiling at the passing, you're celebrating the life that he lived, 
and insha'Allah, the life that he will be living in the hereafter, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala. So with that said, what I wanted to share with you, you know, often we start Islamic events with recitation of the Qur'an. And whose, rec whose recitation would be more befitting than Sheikh Muhammad's? So this is a recitation from Surah Al-Fatih that he did on a tour with Sheikh Yahya Ibrahim when they were in, uh, in Azerbaijan. That was the Imam al-Bukhari tour. So they had asked him to recite some Qur'an before the lectures began. So I took a snippet of that, and inshallah the verses hopefully are, are befitting for that as well. Bismillah. You know, subhanAllah, when the son of the Prophet ﷺ passed away, the Prophet ﷺ, he taught us something very profound. That it's okay to grieve when someone passes away. He tells us that the eyes will shed tears, the heart will grieve, but the tongue will only say that which pleases Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I can't even imagine what it's like to, to lose a child, subhanAllah. Like one of the greatest calamities that you can face in this world. But when I think about losing a friend, losing a mentor, losing a, a, a colleague, someone that was in the service of the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there is that silver lining that I believe the Prophet wasallam wasn't afforded with the loss of his son. And that was the fact that people were singing his praises. And this is something so beautiful about the passing of Sheikh Muhammad, that regardless of your ideological and theological spectrum and where you are on it everyone has something good to say about him and yes the heart is sad and yes the eyes are, are going to shed tears at his passing but you feel that joy that subhanallah the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam tells us that we are the witnesses of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on this earth and when we speak good about one of the slaves of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala jannah becomes obligatory upon that person and I know for myself, whether it was my Facebook feed or my Instagram feed, for the past 36 hours or so, everything has been about Sheikh Muhammad, rahimahullah ta'ala. People sharing the impact he had on their lives, positive incidents that they had. 
And I wanted to share something that, subhanAllah, I didn't know about till Sheikh Yusuf Badat shared this. And this was the fact that him and Sheikh Muhammad had memorized Quran together and were in the same madrasa um, at Ar-Rashid. And this is in, in Cornwall, uh, Ontario. Interesting tidbit. You know, there's this uh, fascination with the number 786. And I'm not sure if this was intentional or not, but if you're driving on the 401 from Montreal to Toronto, exit 786 was the Ar-Rashid Madrasa, subhanAllah. And he mentions that, you know, the, the, the normal child will memorize about a page of Quran a day. But Shaykh Muhammad, rahimahullah, was memorizing half a juz a day. So much so that he had completion, he had completed his hifz in seven months. Seven months, Allahu Akbar. You know, subhanAllah, that's really uh, profound to think about. And oftentimes when we see pictures of Shaykh Muhammad, we see him in his blazer, you know, in a dress shirt. But one of the brothers from Winnipeg, they shared a, a picture from a, a camp that Shaykh Muhammad was at. If I'm not mistaken, he's about 16 or 17 uh, in this picture. He clearly is not very impressed by the person taking this picture. But you could tell that subhanAllah, like he took his deen seriously, he was proud of his Muslim identity. And I think this ties in really well to the, to the lessons I, I, I want to share. But before I want to, to jump into the lessons that I wanted to share with him, I want to talk about my first interactions with him, rahimahullah. And I want to give full disclosure to this, is that a part of this session is helping in my own grieving process. I feel that when we talk about the deceased, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy on them, it helps in the grieving process. It helps us process our feelings, our thoughts, our memories, and our emotions. And I want to afford that opportunity to all of you as well, before Maghrib bidnillahi ta'ala, that those of you that had you know, positive stories with him, I want you to be able to, to share that as well. But to go back to, to my initial interactions with him, I went to the ICNA conference in the year 2000. It was in Baltimore, Maryland. And at the conference in the bazaar, there was a booth called Al-Huda School. And this Al-Huda School was run by Sheikh uh, Safi Khan. And they were selling these cassette tapes. You know, for those of you that you know, are, are in their 20s and may not even know what a cassette tape is, but it's what we used to listen to our audio material too in. And I had $2 left and I was like, I want to spend these $2 before I go home. And you can, I, at this time I'm 18 years old. And I went to their booth and I found this tape called Dangers of the Tongue by Sheikh Muhammad al-Sharif. That was the same year that I got accepted into Medina and I had a limited amount of space with me to take stuff with me. But I wanted to take this tape because I never got a chance to listen to it. I wanted to know what does this tape actually have to say and what does it have to share with us. So I used to listen to this tape. I used to listen to this tape in Medina. And you may think that this is very strange. But even though I was in the city of the Prophet as a student, not knowing when you're going to go back, you longed for your family, you longed for your friends, you longed for this sense of, of normalcy. So when I would listen to that tape and I would hear Canadian English, you know, a boot and a and all these other things that are unique to us, it brought a sense of normalcy. And what was so profound was the recitation that Sheikh Muhammad had. And now obviously, I forgot to mention, this khutbah, Dangers of the Tongue, was a, a khutbah by him. So now we're going to jump to 2005. A friend that I went to elementary school with, he's like, hey, you're coming back this summer, we're having an al-Maghrib class on Usul al-Fiqh, and you're going to think it's like the best thing ever. 
And I was like, dude, you do realize I'm studying at Medina University and we've just started studying Rodot al-Nadir by Ibn Qudama, like a, a very famous Rasul al-Fiqh book. And I was like, what can this guy actually teach us? But Ali, he was a good friend of mine. I was like, let's go check it out. I remember that first weekend, there were like sirens going off in my head because a concept like Fard Mawasiyah, a Fard that you have time to, to do, he had rephrased it into a bucket list obligation. And I was like, what type of heresy is this guy spreading to the people? But by the second weekend, as I saw people's interactions with him, as I saw people able to recall things that he had said and answer questions that he was asking, I was like, Allahu Akbar, this man is a genius. Because what we're going to spend four years studying in Medina University, he was able to simplify some of the most difficult concepts in a span of two weekends. And I was like, you know what? That's something that I want to be a part of. So I remember during the second weekend, during the, uh, the 10 minute break that the instructors are afforded, he was going to the bathroom. And I was like, this is my chance to speak to him. And I hadn't spent any time with him all, all two weekends yet. So I chased him pretty much to the bathroom. And it was a public bathroom. I waited outside the door. And as soon as he came out, I'm standing right in front of the door. And he opens the door and literally he like, it's a shock. Like, why are you standing at the door? And I'm like, Sheikh, I have an important question to ask you. So you can imagine I'm like, what, 22, 23 at this time? And he's like, what is it? And I'm like, Sheikh, I've seen the way that you engage with your students. How do I learn to do that? Like, I want to be able to teach Islam in this way. And that stuck with him, subhanAllah, because I remember in 2007, when I had my interview to sign on for Al-Maghrib, he specifically quoted that question. And I was like, how do you even remember that? How do you even remember that, subhanAllah? And it was from that time on that I knew that there was something special about him. I knew there was something special about Al-Maghrib. And I knew that this man had a vision that I wanted to help facilitate. From there on, he was living in Ottawa. I was living in Montreal, an hour and a half drive away. Almost every month, we would cross paths. Intentionally, we would meet up for lunch and dinner, go and do something fun. And I have a whole bunch of stories about that or even unintentionally at different events that we would just happen to be a part of. But he became a regular part of my life. And then in 2012, I was really sad, subhanAllah, that I was leaving Montreal and moving to Calgary. I was like, I'm going to be moving away from you know, a close friend, a close mentor, a fellow instructor. And it's the qadr of Allah that in that same year, he had moved to Dubai. And I was like, Allahu Akbar. You know, subhanAllah, I'm moving west, he's moving east. And it just so happened that Allahu Akbar, anytime I would go for Umrah thereafter, I would try my best to take a stopover in Dubai just to, go be, to, just to be able to go and, and spend time with him. I remember in 2014, and this is where this picture is from, we did uh, a project myself, Sheikh Muhammad and Sheikh Kamal al-Makki called uh, Ilm Tour. For those of you that are familiar with the, the Jamaat al-Tabliq, you know how they go like house to house and like city to city? This was like the Al-Maghrib version of that. We literally got onto like a bus, three instructors and like 40 people, and we went to like five different cities or maybe seven different cities in the UK, going from masjid to masjid, just giving lecture uh, by lecture. And subhanAllah, it was such a, a beautiful experience to be able to, to share that with him and Sheikh Kamal, listening, being inspired by them, seeing their interactions with, uh, with their students. And it's something that... Um, I don't think I'll, I'll ever forget, subhanAllah. 
Now, let's get into the lessons that Sheikh Muhammad has taught us. Number one, if you see a problem, try fixing it yourself first. And this goes back to, if you listen to the tributes that Sheikh Yasir Qadi or Sheikh Yasir Burjas have mentioned about Sheikh Muhammad, they all talk about how Sheikh Muhammad was in Medina, on how Sheikh Muhammad used to come to them and say, you know what, this is not the way Islam is meant to be taught. Because there was such a heavy emphasis on memorization and parroting what you've learned, but very little focus on implementing, very little focus on have you truly understood the concepts beyond able to, to, to regurgitate what you've memorized. And Sheikh Muhammad used to think, you know, used to say to them that when I go back to the West, I'm going to be, open up my own institute. And there's a very funny story with Sheikh Abdul Bari Yahya. <laughs> Sheikh Abdul Bari Yahya, I want to say, was two years younger uh, than Sheikh Muhammad in Medina. That one day, as they're having their break, Sheikh Muhammad goes to Sheikh Abdul Bari, do you want to join my institute? And Sheikh Abdul Bari is like, what institute? And Sheikh Muhammad's like, when I go back to the West, I'm going to open up an institute to teach Islam to the people in a relevant fashion, in a fun fashion, in an engaging fashion. Do you want to teach in my institute? And Sheikh Abdul Bari is like, sure, you know, we'll see when that day comes. And yet similar incidents with Sheikh Yasser Qadi, similar incidents with Sheikh Yasser Burjas. So that vision of coming back and teaching Islam was phenomenal. And I, I speak from my own experience that as a student in Medina, you're thinking at that time, how am I going to go back and am I, am I, how am I going to earn a living? Like that's on your mind. You listen to Sheikh Yasser Qadi's story, he was focusing on getting his Microsoft certification so that he could be a, like a Microsoft engineer, you know, doing that, and that would be his source of income. But Sheikh Muhammad, from that young age, and you can imagine, he was 17 when he got accepted into Medina, he had this vision of coming back and teaching Islam and addressing this issue of making Islam relevant to young people. You know, Sheikh Yasser Burjas, he shares a story that Sheikh Muhammad's inspiration was happiness. And he said that people are happy when they learn something new. People are happy when they learn something new. Sheikh Yasser Burjas says, what do you mean? He's like, have you ever watched Tom and Jerry? And Sheikh Yasser Burjas says, yes. He's like, you know how when the light bulb goes off, an idea comes to your mind? How can the other person tell that the light bulb has gone off? by a smile on your face. And when a natural smile comes to your face, it means you've learned something new. So if we can empower young people to learn about their faith, that is how they're going to feel proud about their faith. And that was the seed that was planted out of which Al-Maghrib Institute grew. That making faith educational as well as engaging and relevant and fun. And this is something that Sheikh Muhammad took upon himself because he had been to the masajid and it wasn't working. No kids were coming to the masajid. He taught at the Islamic school and he was one of the few teachers that the students actually wanted to learn from. So he's like, there's an idea here that if we can facilitate Islamic education during the time off that people have, this will help them feel proud of their identity. Now you're probably wondering what's happening in this picture. So we're in the city of Manchester right now. This is Abu Isa's hometown. And a part of Ilmfest, Al-Maghrib's conference, was that there was an entertainment session in it. And in that entertainment session, we were broken off into two teams, Sheikh Abu Isa and Sheikh Omar Suleiman, powerhouse of a team, mashallah, and myself and Sheikh Muhammad, who were officially the underdogs. Not only did we not have home court advantage, but for some reason we were considered inferior. So the game is charades. Okay, 
and they're using Islamic terminology, sometimes in Arabic, that you have to act out those words. You have to act out those words. So this is Sheikh Muhammad trying to act out one of the words, and I'm trying to guess uh, what he's saying. So this is Sheikh Muhammad addressing the problem, and you know, we're trying to, to fix it together. So this ownership that he took upon himself, and that he inspired people with, that if you see something, make sure you don't tell anyone about it, fix it yourself, take it upon yourself, take ownership. Don't wait for someone else to do it. And that is where Al-Maghrib stemmed from. Now, he shares a beautiful story, and that is when Khalid ibn Walid, rahimahullah, was removed as the leader of the Muslim army. Because people started to say that the Muslims were victorious because Khalid ibn Walid was the general. And then a young companion was placed and they go into battle and this young companion, he's getting schooled on the battlefield. And this young companion doesn't know what to do. He sees that even the Muslims are losing interest. But in one particular area, he sees that there's a group of Muslims that are just relaxing as if they're on the beach. They're not taking the battle seriously at all. So he tells the scribe to come and he says, jot these words down and go and read it to that group of people that are just sitting there. So the scribe goes and he reads it to the people and all of a sudden their attitude changes. And all of a sudden the tide in the battle is changing and it was, that was the turning point. So the battle finishes and the people start asking, what did the scribe say to you that made you change your attitude? And the, they say that the scribe read to us the words of our general, لا المسلمين اليوم, that do not be the cause of defeat of the Muslims today. That you yourself, you may think you're irrelevant. You yourself, you may think you have no part to play in the ummah. But do not be the cause of defeat of the ummah. That we're all in this together. We all have a share in this battle together. And we will either all win together or we'll all lose together. There's no like this group wins, that group loses. It's all or nothing over here. And that was the attitude that he inspired everyone with. That you need to make sure that you feel as if you're part of the Ummah. The Ummah's problems are not the Ummah's problems. The Ummah's problems are our problems. And we collectively need to work together to come up with those solutions. We collectively need to come together to think of those solutions. Now, I want you to think about his social media handles. They were all nation builder. And on the offset, you may think, how arrogant of him. How could he think of himself as a nation builder. But Allah is my witness, those handles did not stem from arrogance where you would think that he thinks great of himself. Those handles stem from a place where he feels as if he's carrying the burden of the ummah. And that's why he used to refer to himself as the nation builder. I remember when I did my public speaking class with him, he shared something very profound. And this is something I like to share with all the khatibs that when you are on this member, you control the iman of the people. You give a bad khutbah, and you may discourage someone so badly that they may never want to come to the masjid again. You may discourage someone so badly that they may even want to leave Islam. And that is the immense amount of pressure that the khatibs have. That if they do not come prepared, if they do not come ready to engage with their audience and provide them with what the audience needs to uplift their iman, they could end up breaking it. And this is the type of pressure that Sheikh Muhammad felt on himself. That with each passing day, with each passing interaction, 
if I'm not helping people come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, am I possibly the cause that's going to push them further away? So I cannot be the individual that causes people to fail. I cannot be the cause of failure of the ummah. Here's something that people don't know. Sheikh Muhammad, he completed a bachelor's in, in Sharia from the Islamic University of Medina. But when he came back, he also completed a master's from the University of West uh, Virginia in integrated marketing. And that's something very phenomenal. And I'll share it for two reasons. Number one was you know that Sheikh Muhammad, he loved Islam and he wanted to spread Islam as far and wide as possible. So much so in the naming of Al-Maghrib, like literally the West, that Al-Maghrib is going to handle Islam in the West. That's where he wanted it to reach. He used to think of Al-Andalus and how Islam spread all the way till there, that this is the way he wanted Islam through Al-Maghrib, right? The West altogether. And he shared something very profound. If an institute like McDonald's can literally spend billions of dollars marketing hamburgers, why can we not put effort and excellence and money into marketing Islam? Where are our standards? How can a burger be worth more than Islam? And if we can acknowledge that it's fine to spend billions of dollars marketing a burger, how can we not spend from our own pockets, from our own wealth, in the cause of Islam? And that was a, a game changer. And as we mentioned, Sheikh Muhammad always took it upon himself. So he went, he got a degree in integrated marketing, and he basically taught Islamic organizations, whether it's charities, masajid, institutes, whatever it is, how do you spread the message of Islam? And subhanAllah, a lot of us may be too young to remember this, but now when we see posters, you know, we're very, very critical. Like the design isn't as nice as it could have been. But back in the day, literally, this was your poster. Some uncle in the masjid was coming, please attend tonight's halakha at 8 p.m., guest speaker, attend tonight. And they posted on the wall, and that was your flyer. And subhanAllah, it was due to that catalyst that Shaykh Muhammad raising the standards of advertising Islam and advertising uh, events that those things change that now that we can be critical, okay, maybe this font isn't right, maybe that color isn't right. It was because of the standard that he had set. As you got to know Shaykh Muhammad, you realized he didn't watch much TV. You talked to him about things that you saw on TV and he couldn't relate to it at all. Why? Because he was always engulfed in his books. Like, subhanAllah, either he's physically reading a book or he's listening to an audiobook. That's what his life was all about. And that's something that I genuinely loved is that he was so well read about so many topics that when you attended his leadership workshop, it was as if he had mastered leadership. You attended a public speaking class, it was as if he had mastered public speaking. You attended, you know, his um, life coaching certification. He's speaking about emotional intelligence. It is as if he has mastered it. And not because he's done some sort of training, which he probably did at some point or another, but it was because he had read and listened to so much. And this was another facet of how do you make sure you're not a cause of defeat of the ummah? By doing everything that you do with excellence. Everything that you do with excellence. You know, subhanAllah, it's phenomenal. When the Prophet ﷺ described Ihsan, he described it as to worship Allah as though you can see Him. And even though you cannot see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, know that He sees you. And that is the impact that Allah is meant to have on you. 
that you're meant to live your life with excellence. But subhanAllah, when you look at Shaykh Muhammad and his striving for excellence, it came from a different angle. He says that human beings have a need of recognition. Each and every one of us wants to be recognized for the things that we do. From a young age, the child wants to stand in front of their parent and they're like, Daddy, Mommy, look at me playing in the water. Look at me on my swing. Look at me able to climb up the slide and slide down. We want that attention. We want that recognition for what we're able to do. As we get older, it translates into the tasks and the chores, the things that we do in our houses, the things that we do in our workspaces. We want to be recognized. We want to be appreciative. And here's where Shaykh Muhammad brings a very profound lesson that if you look at Khutbatul Wida'ah, what does the Prophet ﷺ say? He says, Oh Allah, testify that I have conveyed the message. Even though you know, hundreds of thousands of people are in front of him, he's asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that, Oh Allah, testify that the message has been conveyed. Why is that? Because even the Prophet ﷺ wanted that recognition but not from the creation because the creation couldn't do anything for him and he had a much deeper understanding of islam that it is only the recognition of allah that matters and shaykh muhammad beautifully tied in the verse from surah tawbah that go ahead and do your deeds for surely allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching you Surely Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching you. So his striving for excellence came from that peace of mind that as I'm looking for recognition, I know that it is only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's recognition that I want. I know that it is only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's recognition that I want. And if I want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's audience, I need to do it from a place of excellence. I need to do it from a place of excellence. Now I remember early on, I remember very early on, Shaykh Muhammad, he focused a lot on what is your legacy? And he would ask all the instructors, you know, what is the legacy that you're going to leave behind? And that was such an uncomfortable question. Because we don't even, perhaps some of us, we don't even know what legacy means. Or if we do, we haven't thought about it. Or if we have thought about it, we come to the realization that who am I to leave a legacy? Who am I to leave a legacy? But when you think about the legacy of Shaykh Muhammad al-Sharif, I think his public legacy, without a shadow of a doubt, was Al-Maghrib Institute, the largest Islamic institute in the West, right? This past year, they celebrated their 20th anniversary, where over 200,000 people have, been, have come through uh, Al-Maghrib Institute and its various classes. That you can't deny the fact that that was his legacy. But when we talk about legacy, is that all it is? Some grandiose gesture that you leave behind that people will remember you for? Is that all a legacy can be? Or is it much, much more than that? And I think we need to break down some of these actions that perhaps we don't pay too much attention to, tying it into Al-Maghrib itself. But one of the legacies that Shaykh Muhammad left behind was bringing people together as tribes. Every city was a qabila, and as a qabila, you worked together to spread Islam. You worked together to provide those social services. You worked together, and you build a community within the broader community. How many marriages 
took place from the Qabila system, subhanAllah. If you think about a legacy, I want you to think about digital audio. Like that transition from audio tapes to CDs. Sheikh Muhammad, rahimahullah, revolutionized that through Iman Rush. Iman Rush Audio Presents. And all of the classes were selling these CDs. That was transition that we had these nice graphics, relevant topics, top quality sound on these CDs. If you think about the legacy of Sheikh Muhammad, how many of us as khatibs have gone to khutbah.com because we were told that, you know, in 15 minutes we need you to give a khutbah. Or by the way, the khatib didn't show up. Can you give a khutbah right now? Khutbah.com saved so many khatibs' careers because they were able to take those khutbahs. If you think about the legacy of Sheikh Muhammad, think about the people that he brought together in terms of the instructors. He met Sheikh Yasir Qadi, Sheikh Yasir Burjas, Sheikh Abdul Bari Yahya, all of them in Medina. And from that time, he's like, I want you guys to be a part of my institute and work together so that we can spread Islam. Those relationships that he fostered between the people. But what's even more fascinating are the personal legacies that he's left behind. And this is what I, I want to impart everyone with. That a legacy is not this grandiose gesture like we're speaking about, like Al-Maghrib Institute or like Discover You. The legacies that we want to impart with people are the way that we make people feel. The way that people remember us. The emotions that they feel when they think about us. So I want to share with you Sheikh Yasser Burjas when he's in, in an elevator at a conference and Sheikh Muhammad is seeing him again after 20 years or so, or not 20 years, but a long time, you could say about a decade or, or so, and just randomly bumps into him in an elevator and he's like, hey, are you here to speak at this conference? Sheikh Yasser Burjas is like, no. Sheikh, Yasser, Sheikh Muhammad tells him, okay, you're going to take my slot and you're going to speak about the evolution of Islamic legislation. And Sheikh Yasser Burjas is like, you must be crazy. And Sheikh Muhammad was like, no, you got to do it. And he put him on the spot, helped him with his speaking notes. And Sheikh Yasser Burjas barely spoke English at that time. He says that I could barely put two words together. But Sheikh Muhammad saw something in me and he empowered me with it. And that is how the career of Sheikh Yasser Burjas in Dawah began from that incident in an elevator. I think about Sheikh Abdul Bari Yahya, this quiet, gentle person, very calm, very pleasant, very serene. Sheikh Muhammad saw that this man had the character, saw that this man had the knowledge, but he didn't have the ability to engage with the people and to build rapport with them. So what did Sheikh Muhammad force him to do in the instructor training? He forced him to get onto a chair and basically shout on the top of his lungs. Some of the versions of the story actually say he forced Sheikh Abdul Bari to take his shirt off. And he's like, you got to speak like that to get rid of your shyness, right? This is the deen of Allah. You can't be shy at this point in conveying this message. And that is how Sheikh Abdul Bari got rid of his shyness. You think about the interactions that he had with Sheikh Yasir Qadi. That Sheikh Yasir Qadi was very set in his ways and Sheikh Muhammad was like, you gotta soften up a little bit. You, you're teaching the deen of Allah. You can't be strict and harsh with the people. And eventually as Sheikh Yasir comes back and he starts to change and becomes more gentle and becomes more soft, those are the things that Sheikh Yasir mentions now and remembers about Sheikh Muhammad. So when we think about legacies, do not belittle the interactions that you have with people. I think... 
a legacy that I feel that Sheikh Muhammad left upon myself that I share with Sheikh Yahya Ibrahim is the legacy of Hajj. Sheikh Muhammad, rahimahullah, if I'm not mistaken, he had gone for Hajj something like 21 years in a row. And then in 2019, he said, you know what? I'm going to take a break now. My kids are getting older and it's getting closer to the summertime. I want to take some time off and I'm not going to go for Hajj this year. But he encouraged the other instructors, go. If you're not doing Hajj regularly, you need to go. You'll see that it changes your life, the likes of nothing else. So I remember that was something very inspirational. Like, okay, we know the fiqh of Hajj. We know the fadail of Hajj. But how does Hajj change your life? And remember in 2016, when I started going for Hajj every single year, it's not something you can explain. But all of a sudden, there's barakah, more barakah in your health, more barakah in your time, more barakah in your wealth, more barakah in your ibadah. And now, when I, I don't go for Hajj, literally it's as if something is missing from my life that is screaming inside of me, you need to go whatever it takes, subhanAllah. And I believe... After the tawfiq of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I'm indebted to Shaykh Muhammad for inspiring me with that. And that's something that Shaykh Yahya Ibrahim shared as well. So the legacy that Shaykh Muhammad left behind, yes, the public one is Al-Maghrib Institute, but the internet is a witness to this. It's also the way that he interacted with people. It's also the way that people remember him as well. Now he lived by this model, no blame, no excuses, just results and lessons. So if you were an employee of his or you worked with his, he would never accept any excuses from you. He would never allow you to blame a circumstance or to blame someone else. He would say either you get the job done or you tell me what you've learned from not being able to achieve what you wanted to achieve. Those were the only two options in interacting with him. And that was part of the growth mindset that he had. And this is something that I took from his Facebook page where he says, every difficulty comes with an opportunity to experience and learn and turn it into something that will bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So even something new that you learn, it ties directly back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because وَفَوْقَ كُلِّ ذِي عِلْمٍ عَلِيمٍ That on top of every scientist, on top of every teacher is the most knowledgeable Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I think part of his mentality of growth, no blame, no excuses, just results and lessons, that was a part of his striving for excellence. Now I know something that he did so well, subhanAllah, was in dealing with critics. As you know, Sheikh Muhammad in the public sphere was very, not, not did he come across as very extroverted, but very eccentric. Like he would do a lot of strange things. Like if you remember Tarawih truffles, he always starts off with a clap. Or if you took his old Al-Maghrib classes, during the breaks, he's like, thumbs up, breathe in, oh yeah! And you're like, what is happening here? Why are we doing this? Very eccentric. And people would be very critical of that. But subhanAllah, he had this mentality of always learn to slay your dragons. That the critics are your dragons, and if they're not directly relevant to your life, why are you going to give them space in your heart and your mind? How many dreams are stopped from being achieved because we're afraid of people's criticism and what people will say about us? I remember something profound that he shared in the Khatib training workshop. He says that when you give a khutbah, you or when you become a Khatib rather, you have to break your audience down into three categories. 10% of people that will always love you. 
No matter how bad you do, no matter how disastrous of a khutbah you give, they'll be like, Jazakallah khair, that was amazing, that was life-changing. And in your head, you know that's not true. But you appreciate the fact that these people are so kind and so positive and have husnadhanu with everything that you appreciate their presence. And then he says you have 10% of people that will hate you no matter how amazing your khutbah is and how profound your delivery is and how motivated and you know, iman rush the people are after that khutbah. They will find something to complain about. Where is your topi? Why are your pants not higher? Why is your beard not longer? How dare you like, laugh or smile in your khutbah? They will find something to criticize you. Oh, you know, your makharij or your tajweed wasn't perfect. Like, subhanAllah, what do you do at that time? And even in these people, he teaches us such a profound lesson that I'll share with you shortly. And he says, these people, for the most part, you just ignore. Then he says, that leaves 80% of the people. 80% of the people are genuine, good-wishing, caring people that want you to succeed. But at the same time, if you don't deliver on the tasks that you've been assigned and you don't do it well, they will let you know. So don't pay attention to the 10% that love you. Don't pay attention to the 10% that hate you. But the 80% who are the majority that are genuinely there and want to benefit, those are the people that you need to pay attention to. So when someone comes, you, comes to you with a criticism, you need to be able to engage, is this person from the 80% where this is genuine feedback and this is something I need to improve on? Or is this person from the 10% that no matter how I do and what I do, they're going to criticize me? And this is a very profound strategy that he had. And he left with this point, he says, the 10% of people that always love you, as a human being, you're going to feel down from time to time. These are the people that you turn to and they will uplift your spirits. And that is why in every Al-Maghrib class, he would always find like the happy smile person and he would always make eye contact with them because he wanted to feel happy in the classroom. And he says, as for the 10% of people that will always hate you, then for those people, when you feel arrogant, when you feel proud, when you feel you've like overachieved, go and listen to their criticism. They will make sure you're humbled. They will make sure you leave with humility. They will make sure you're brought down to earth. And then as for the 80%, always keep a close ear to them because they're generally going to teach you and let you know what you need to know. And I loved the way that he dealt with criticism, subhanAllah. He would figure out who you are, if it's genuine, if it's valid, he was the first person to accept it. But if it was one of those situations where literally you're an armchair critic, Jazakallah khair, thank you so much. You hear it in one ear, you let it out the other, and you move on with your life, achieving your dream, living to the highest possible standard, because you have bigger things to do with your life and your time than listen to these armchair critics. Allah wants better from me. You know, Sheikh uh, Ibrahim Hindi, his family and uh, Sheikh Muhammad Sheikh's family were actually very, very close. Their fathers were contemporaries. Sheikh Muhammad's father was the bookstore keeper at Sheikh Ibrahim's father's uh, masjid. So they sort of grew up together and shared a lot of experiences. And when Al-Maghrib came to Toronto, Sheikh Ibrahim Hindi, he was the one that helped facilitate and open up the qabila and things of that nature. And Sheikh Ibrahim Hindi, he, um, he shares this profound story, subhanAllah, that one time he felt that he had done something really, really well. 
And because he had done it so well, the next time he wanted to do it, he didn't feel motivated. So he asked Sheikh Muhammad, what advice do you have for me? That, like, how can I regain that level of motivation that I had? And Sheikh Muhammad gave him this advice. He says, anytime you feel that you've done a good job and you feel demotivated, remind yourself that Allah wants better for me. Allah wants better from me. And I think, subhanAllah, we can apply this to all aspects of our lives. Not just our ibadah, that Allah wants better from us, but the way that we treat our family, the way that we treat our friends, the way that we interact with our colleagues, the way that you know, we raise our children. Allah always wants better from us. And there's always room for improvement. There's always room for improvement. So when you think about your motivation, the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is your audience, and this ties into your sincerity, that sincerity means there could be a million people in front of you, but you only care about the one subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that that one wants better from you. That one wants better from you. And that is why you should always strive to be better and always strive to do more. Because the one that's going to reward you is the one that gave you life, the one that gave you ability, the one that gave you guidance. And that one wants more and better from you. So always continue striving to the next level. And this is uh, something beautiful. If you ever received those um, email marketing from Sheikh Muhammad, what did he sign off as? Wanting to see you succeed at the highest level. Where did that stem from? It was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants better from me. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants better from me. I forgot to tell the uh, story over here uh, on this slide. So we were still pray, uh, playing um, charades and the word that was assigned to me that I had to act out was qiyas. Was qiyas. And I was like, how do you act out the word qiyas? And what type of shaitan chose the word qiyas to put in the game of charades, subhanAllah. But I remember that, subhanAllah, we were able to pull it off. I don't even remember what I did. And if I did remember, I still wouldn't act it out again. But we ended up winning. And it was such a genuine moment of, of happiness. And like, when I think of Sheikh Muhammad celebrating like this, you know, that's how I envision that, inshaAllah ta'ala, as he's entering the, the gates of Jannah, he's celebrating that, Allahu Akbar, you know, al-fawzul kabir, I've made it. And that attitude comes with not being the cause of defeat for the Ummah. This was at the end of Ilmfest in Manchester, all the instructors, we may think that this was the legacy, but the, legacy, the greater legacy, and Allah knows best, is the way that he interacted with all of us, saw potential in all of us, inspired all of us, motivated all of us. And then this is from um, the Hajj of, of 2017, where he had started this amazing sunnah of the Mina conference, that all of these different instructors were all in Mina. And what do you do in Mina? Like oftentimes it's hot, there's not much to do. So unless you're you know, making dhikr, reading Quran, most of the times you're just going to spend sleeping or socializing. So he said, why don't we open up our tents, bring all of the instructors together, and we're going to have a Mina conference. And this is the Mina conference from 2017, subhanAllah. And this is uh, such a, a beautiful memory to remember, that just like we were in Mina worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, we only hope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala unites us together in Jannah to celebrate um, 
the acceptance of, of our deeds, subhanAllah. And that's why I love this picture so much. Now, Sheikh Muhammad, he launched a, a lot of programs. So I want, I want us to understand something. When we speak about the Sadaqah Jariyah, this legacy of Sheikh Muhammad, rahimahullah, yes, without a shadow of doubt, it is Al-Maghrib Institute. But I want you to understand the role that Sheikh Muhammad played. He was the pivotal instructor, the lead instructor for about you know, 10 years or so. Built the foundation, hired a whole bunch of other instructors, gave them the best training possible. And then thereafter, he only used to consult to troubleshoot. If something was wrong, something could be improved, he would be consulted for those things. He had stepped back. So he had spent a decade building his sadaqah jariyah. And you could tell that towards the end of it, it wasn't something that he was enjoying anymore. That, you know, that passion that he had when he first started, it wasn't there anymore. You could see it, that he was burning out. So where was it heading? It was towards self-development. He got exposed to these motivational speakers. And he's like, you know what, this is what we need to uplift the ummah now. We've given them the education. Now let's uplift their personality and help them reach that next level of success. So he started off the life coaching certification. And thereafter, he started Niche Hero. And subhanAllah, I attended Niche Hero three times, uh, twice in Toronto, once in London. And for me, it was a life-changing experience. Like when we talk about the concept of leadership from an Islamic perspective, till this day, I haven't come across anything better than it. And that is why I invested in that, subhanAllah. But after that, he launched uh, Visionaire, he launched Dream Pill, uh, sorry, he launched um, Red Pill. He launched all these different classes. But the one that I think struck a chord with everyone and resonated with everyone was Visionaire on using dua to achieve your dreams and using dua to set the future of your life and subhanAllah I remember there were so many critics myself included at that time are we charging people to teach them how to make dua like that was the misconception that everyone had that this class is about making dua how can we charge them to teach them how to make dua but it was a huge misconception it was a huge huge misconception because when you look at fulfillment from a human perspective, there is a clock inside all of us. And as that clock keeps ticking, you start thinking to yourself, what have I achieved in my life? What have I done with my life? And Sheikh Muhammad, he used to do this beautiful exercise. That subhanAllah is such a powerful exercise where he says, close your eyes and imagine. And we don't have time to do it right now, so we're not going to do it. But I want to share it with you so that when you do get the time, you do try to do it. Close your eyes and imagine that you're on your deathbed. And you have a feeling of fulfillment, you have a feeling of happiness, you have a feeling of joy because you've lived a very fulfilling life. What did you achieve in your life that made you feel so fulfilled? What did you achieve in your life that made you feel so fulfilled? And he does this over a period of three or four minutes as your eyes close, so you can really envision what it's like to be on your deathbed Surrounded by your loved ones, but you're not panicking, you're not scared, you're happy and content because you know you've lived a full life. But what did you do? And it helps you answer that question, what should I be doing with my life? What should I be doing with my life? And he says, once you figure that out, you realize two things. That legacies are never built by one individual themselves. And the most important thing that as Muslims, as believers, we believe in the concept of لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله, that there's no power or might 
except by the will of Allah. That unless the tawfiq of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is there, I'm not going to be achieving it. Unless the tawfiq of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is there, I'm not going to be achieving it. So dua was not being sold. How to make dua was not being sold. It was the Islamic version of how to live a fulfilling life. That when you think about all the du'as that you could be making, you should be making, and all the things you can achieve by the tawfiq of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is the trajectory that you set for your life of what you want to achieve. Of what you want to achieve. And that is what Visionaire was all about. That if you can dream it, then you can make it happen through du'a. And that is why Visionaire was not about dreaming. It was about having a vision, having a step-by-step process of what you will achieve and how you will achieve it, understanding that dua is the most important concept. And this is why he had this beautiful line, subhanAllah, write your destiny with the pen of dua. Write your destiny with the pen of dua. This was a, a, a picture of, of, uh, of Sheikh Muhammad rahimahullah, having mango lassi. And some of you may not know this, but his wife uh, is actually from Pakistan. And he married into a Desi family and he picked up the Desi culture to a certain degree. He loved his lassis, he loved his uh, Desi food. And um, like mango lassi would just make him so happy, subhanAllah. And interesting enough, he was one of those few people that he didn't like chocolate. Like he, you could offer him chocolate, he did not like it, subhanAllah. But you gave him his mango lassi and he would be that little kid that enjoyed it so much. And I always think of this uh, infectious smile that he had, subhanAllah. Like even though he was a grown man, you know, rahimahullah, he passed away at 47. He was still a young child at heart on the inside. You know, he was just uh, this young little kid that came from a small town in Winnipeg that was mistreated because he was the only brown kid and he was called Muhammad, that he had to create everything for himself, create his own community, his own society, in order to feel included. Those are his exact words that he said in an interview, subhanAllah. But who knew that he would touch so many people directly and indirectly? That subhanAllah, if I think of all the other institutes that exist right now, after the tawfiq of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how many of them are indebted to the foundations that Shaykh Muhammad established through Al-Maghrib. Like the level of backlash he suffered when trying to set up in different communities, the different hardships he had to go through. But once he broke through, that opened up the floodgates for Islamic education and Islamic institutes and for charities and all that stuff. So Shaykh Muhammad rahimahullah, has definitely preceded us in his journey to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I think, you know, Shaykh Walid, he shared something very profound. He said that Sheikh Muhammad started up Al-Maghrib and he actually started up the uh, Al-Maghrib instructors WhatsApp group. And he was the first one to leave. He was the first one to leave. Started everything and he was the first one to leave. So who's going to be next? You know, as Muslims, we're not allowed to ask why. Why did Sheikh Muhammad pass away? We can't ask that. Why did anything pass away or happen? We don't ask that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not question as to what he does and why he does it, but it is rather us who will be questioned. 
And subhanAllah, this concept of us continuously being shocked when someone passes away, you know, at what point do we start to realize that life is not a guarantee? Right? Your next breath, your next heartbeat, your next interaction with someone, your next meeting with someone, it's not guaranteed. So if you're going to do something, you have to do it now because now is the only thing that's guaranteed to you. The future is not guaranteed. And I want to share something really scary with you, subhanAllah. If I can just get this to work, inshallah. Okay, so I want you to look at the date of this. This is July 7th, 2022, right? That's uh, 15 days ago. 15 days ago. You know, subhanAllah, when the Prophet ﷺ passed away, there were signs that you clearly knew that he was going to pass away. He had appointed Abu Bakr to lead the Salah. He told the people that perhaps I might not be alive next year. was revealed. was revealed. So the Prophet ﷺ knew that his time was coming. But perhaps everyone didn't. And I think, and Allah knows best, but Sheikh Muhammad knew that his time is coming. Correction, begin when you die. And how quickly can you die? You can die in an instant. You can die in an instant. So the day of judgment is a heartbeat away from me. Can Allah subhanahu protect me? So in this lecture, he talks about that. He talks about how in, in an instance you can die, right? And subhanAllah, like this is literally 15 days before he passes away. Literally 15 days before he passes away. And subhanAllah, I think the details are still going to come out about you know, some of the things that he did in these past 15 days. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best that perhaps he was prepared for it. Or perhaps he was getting ready for it. And Allah knows best that he was one of those individuals that Allah perhaps, or maybe he did have that relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now the last thing I wanted to, to share with you, and I think this epitomizes Sheikh Muhammad <laughs> in his weird sunglasses in Hajj, <laughs> where he saw everything in yellow. So it could even be like nighttime and it's as if it's like Dhuhr, the sun is gloom, gleaming at you. Um, you know, this is perhaps one of the most powerful khutbahs I've heard in my life. This was in, in, in 2009. And I think if you want to go home and you want to reflect on where your life is at, if you want to reflect on how you leave a legacy and reflect on what you want to do with your life, I've shared this PowerPoint publicly on, on the Facebook page. Um, so you can use that as well. Or if you don't get a chance to access it. Oops. There we go. Why is it not working for me? SubhanAllah, let's go back manually. There we go. That he gave this khutbah, it's called Nation Building. And in it, he talks about the story of a Najashi. It was in a lot of the videos. You can listen to this. But I want to tie this back into, into Calgary. So this khutbah was given in 2009 in Toronto. And it's only about 25 minutes long. 
But in 2010, both Sheikh Mohammed and I we were invited to the One Ummah Conference. And this was my first One Ummah Conference as well, if I'm not mistaken. And his topic was the legacy. And it's a 58 minute lecture. And subhanAllah, you know, what are the chances that he would give this lecture in, uh, in Calgary? In 2014, he held Visionaire in Banff. By a show of hands, how many of you were, uh, were at that? I know quite a few of you were. Any sisters that were there? No? We had quite a few brothers that were there, subhanAllah. So we had this connection to, to the city of Calgary, subhanAllah. And this is, uh, you know, rahimahullah, what I, what I keep thinking about. He's preceded us in meeting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's preceded us in doing the good deeds. And now it's up to us to figure out what do we want to do with our lives, right? What do we want to do with our lives? May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive him and have mercy upon him and make his grave a grave of light and not a grave of darkness or a grave that is a window to the hellfire but rather a grave that has a window to, the, to, to paradise. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cleanse him with ice and water and snow of his sins just like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is able to cleanse a, a white sheet of, of any filth. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make his grave spacious May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make his questioning an easy one. May the angels give him the glad tidings of, of Jannah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make him of those whose reckoning is easy and make him of those that is entered into Al-Firdaus Al-A'la. Allahumma ameen. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not deprive us of any of the khair that he has left behind and allow us to be united with him and those better than him like the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and the companions in al-Firdaus al-A'la, Allahumma ameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyyana Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.